or so, we've been doing a series on the hard sayings of Jesus, and I hope that you have enjoyed it, and if not, just keep that to yourself. But, uh, for better or worse, we'll be wrapping up in the next two weeks, and this week we're going to be looking at a hard saying that Jesus gave as he was dying on the cross for us. In, in very early Christianity, uh, Christians wanted a symbol to represent their faith, to symbolize their faith. Many religions back then had symbols, and so Christianity, Christians wanted a symbol for their faith. And so there was, there was a lot of ideas thrown around. One of the earliest, most popular ideas was the fish, uh, because Jesus has called us to make disciples, to be fishers of men, and he multiplied the fishes and the loaves, and so it, it, that was a popular idea, and I think a lot of you are familiar with that, because fishes have kind of come back in vogue in Christianity as a symbol. Uh, some of you put them on your car, and I see cars with fishes eating Darwin, and Darwin's eating fishes, and just kind of all kinds of weird stuff going on with that, but the fishes are kind of popular now. Um, some other people, some other Christians proposed a rainbow, because they, they felt like, um, I know some of you are smiling out there, it's, it's kind of been co-opted by maybe some other groups, but back then... Um, <laughs> Back then, uh, the rainbow symbolized that, uh, for them that God had made this new covenant with Noah, if you remember that in Genesis, when he promised never to flood the earth. And so as Christians now, we have a new covenant with God through Jesus, and so they thought maybe the rainbow would be appropriate. Others thought maybe a dove would be a good symbol, because we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, and the dove represents the Holy Spirit. And then other people thought maybe a foot would be a good symbol, because um, Peter was always sticking his foot in his mouth, and he was a leader of the early church. And No, I, I just made that up. But Anyway, ideas were tossed around, but eventually the church decided on a symbol that became universal, and it universally represents Christianity. And all of you know what it is. It's the cross. By 200 A.D., the cross had become the symbol of Christianity. And Christians at that time began to put crosses on, on their house. They would hang them up to decorate the inside of their house. They would sometimes make the mark of a cross on their door or on their walls on the outside of their house. Uh, Christians began to wear necklaces with crosses on them. And this was a very strange thing. It's very familiar to us, but it was very strange back then because in 200 AD, Christianity was not the, the uh, official religion of Rome. And for most people, the cross was a symbol of execution, of torture. It would be a little bit like if we went around wearing necklaces of, I don't know, like electric chair, or, or you have like a, a big picture of a hangman's noose hanging up on your wall, and people think, man, this guy's kind of strange, like, he's weird. And it was worse for them back then because the cross wasn't just a way of executing people, it was a way of horribly, horribly torturing people to death. And so to go out in public with a cross hanging around your neck was, it was weird, not just weird, it was repulsive to people, and yet Christian, Christians decided that this, this cross, would be the symbol of their religion, so much so that the cross has now exploded and it's become the most popular, the most widely recognized symbol in the history of the world. So much so that a couple years ago when I was in China, uh, I, was, I was down at a night market trying to, to pick up some, some, some junk for uh, souvenirs. And I mean, look, they look nice, but they break. And I'm looking around at stuff and uh, there was table after table after table of jewelry, and much of the jewelry was necklaces with crosses on it, or bracelets with crosses. And lots of people were buying these, and I would ask people, what, do you understand what this means? And most people didn't. They may know that, yeah, it's kind of associated with Christianity somehow, but they really didn't understand. They just liked it. They liked to have an, a cross necklace. It's become 
popular. Uh, and you'll watch you know, the MTV Music Awards or whatever, and you'll see you know, guys like Axl Rose and in 50 Cent, they're wearing these huge like, cross necklaces. It's very, very popular. And even among Christians today, we sing about the cross. We, we have cross symbols. You can't see it here, but we have cross symbols in our churches. The cross is the symbol of our faith. It's the symbol of our theology. And in some ways, I think it's a little bit strange as kind of an outsider to think about that. Because as Christians, we certainly believe Jesus died on a cross, but we also believe that he was raised, that he came out of the grave, came from the empty tomb, and, and he's alive today. And so you would think that maybe our symbol would be an empty tomb, like maybe, a, I don't know, a coffin with the top off. That's kind of weird, too. But you would think that would become kind of our, our symbol, the, the sign that Jesus has been raised. Of course, the cross is important, but, you know, let's move on. You would think that would be kind of the idea, the kind of the thinking of Christians, but it's not. The cross is a symbol. Of course, we believe it's important that Jesus rose from the dead, but the cross is our symbol. And why? Why is it so important? What is so unique about Jesus' crucifixion? What makes him and his cross special? We're going to look at that today in Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 26. Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 26. I guess I should tell you where it is. I maybe five, six of the way through the Bible. I'm not real good with numbers, but Matthew 27, verse 26. Then he, the he there is Pilate, then he, Pilate, released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. One thing that's always struck me in reading the accounts of Jesus' passion is that the gospel writers are very, they're not very graphic. They're very just factual just kind of presenting it kind of as it happened was very, very simple. Not, you know, not a lot of graphic details. They say he was flogged, one word, and then they say he was crucified, and they don't go into detail about that. And I think a big reason for that probably is that their audience understood what went into flogging. The audience understood what went into the crucifixion. They knew the horrible details. They didn't need to be informed of that. And many of you have seen uh, The Passion of the Christ, and so you are probably familiar also with a lot of the gory details of, of the flogging and the, the crucifixion of Christ. And I know there have been some criticisms of that movie, but I think it, it gives a fairly accurate picture of the physical sufferings of Jesus. The brutality and the mockery of these soldiers was real. Uh, at this time, during the, during the Passover, there would be up to 600 soldiers housed in the Praetorium, which is where they took Jesus. And these, these soldiers, they're brutal men, 
brutal. This is what they do. They kill people. They hurt people. And I think not only are they br brutal, I think they're demonized. I think there's a demonic influence here that's just going after Jesus. And so these are brutal, demonized men who are whipping Jesus. And we know from history that people often died from the floggings. A lot of people never made it to the cross because the floggings were so, so gruesome. Uh, they would use a, a whip with nine leather straps, and in these straps was interwoven shards of metal and bone and, and sharp rocks. And they would whip people, and those things would catch into the skin and rip off chunks of skin. There's actually a historical account of, of somebody having one of their ribs ripped out uh, as they're being whipped. So it was a horrible, horrible experience to be whipped this way. And some people will say, well, these guys couldn't have been that bad, because in verse 34 it says they gave Jesus a drink. I said, well, these guys, you know, there's some compassion here for Jesus. I don't really think they were compassionate. If you read it, it says they gave him wine mixed with gall. And Mark, it says they gave him wine mixed with myrrh. Gall is the description. It's, it means bitter. Myrrh is the substance. And if you put myrrh into a drink, it made that drink bitter. And if you gave, put enough myrrh into the drink, it was actually, uh, you couldn't stomach it. It was too bitter. And so they're giving this, offering this wine to Jesus, and he's dehydrated. His body is in shock. He's desperate for a drink. And so he's, of course, his lips are parched, and he's, he's, he's reaching for that drink. And then they give it to him, and he's, you know, he's gagging, and he spits it up because it's too bitter. He can't stomach it. They weren't, they weren't being compassionate. They're just mocking him. It's all part of the mockery. And in the ancient world, crucifixion was the ultimate horror. It was impolite to speak of, of crucifixion in public conversation. You would not even bring it up. It was so painful that Romans had to create a new word to describe the agony of crucifixion. That word translated is excruciating. It means out of the cross. It's the kind of pain that someone would only experience being crucified. And as bad as the pain was, uh, the shame in this culture was, was equally as bad because this is an honor, shame-based culture. You want to do everything you can to, to save face and to bring honor to your family. You don't want to do anything to dishonor your family. And to be crucified was the ultimate loss of face. It was the ultimate loss of honor. It brought lasting shame on your family. They would take you outside of the city. They would strip you naked, and they would, they would crucify you right outside of the city on a public highway, on the main road going in and out of the city. And so people are walking in and out, and they're looking at you. And you weren't crucified like 50 feet up in the air like some of these, some of these Easter dramas that I've seen where people are like hanging way up there. You were only a, a few feet off the ground. You're hanging there, dying, naked, and people are, are mocking you. They're spitting on you. They're gambling over your clothes, they're gambling over when you're gonna when you're gonna cry out. They're gambling over your next when you're gonna have your next bowel movement. They're gambling when you're gonna die. People are doing this right in front of you. This agony and shame can go on for days. And for Jews, it was even worse because Jews believed that a crucified person was under God's curse, and they got that from Deuteronomy, where it said that anyone hung on a tree was cursed by God. And so for Jews, they believed not only is this person suffering in this life, but they're headed for hell. They're going to suffer in the next life. It was very repulsive for a Jew. And so it's not an accident that the Jewish leaders demand that Jesus be crucified. There was other options for them. He could have been stoned. Uh, he could have been banished, expelled from Israel on penalty of death. There's other options. But they, not only did they want to get rid of Jesus, they wanted to destroy his reputation. There's a groundswell of support. People are following him. People are excited about him. They think he's the Messiah. Some people, people even maybe think he's the Son of God, divine. And so the way to crush that, these people think, these leaders think, is to crucify him. 
It was repulsive. It's the reason that Romans would crucify rebel leaders. Because if you crucified somebody, no one would ever follow that person. No one would ever honor that person's memory. It was, it was inconceivable to, to follow uh, the memory of a crucified man, much less to worship that person after they've been crucified. And so they have Jesus crucified. They call for that. And so all this suffering goes into Jesus's, goes into Jesus's, uh, his flogging and his crucifixion, and yet Matthew's not very graphic. He just says, well, he's flogged and he's crucified. And again, part of that is because Matthew's audience, they knew what went into this. But I think another reason is that Matthew's main focus here is on the purpose of Jesus' sufferings. What happened is important, absolutely. But why it happened is even more important. We're going to see that very clearly in these next two sections. Verse 37. Above his head they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of of the Jews. Two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Have you ever been in a situation where you said something, you were joking, you said something kind of in jest, and just kind of lighthearted, and you ended up saying more than you realized? You said more truth? Than you, were, than you realized that you were saying. Maybe you were you know, kind of joking about yourself and you kind of end up with a little Freudian slip and you're like, oh man, and everybody kind of realizes you just you know, said something about yourself that was private. Or maybe you're joking with somebody else. Maybe somebody comes to a small group and they come without their spouse and you're kind of joking around and you're like, hey, where's so-and-so? You guys have a fight? And you're kind of laughing and they're like, yeah, yeah, we did. It was really bad. And then you feel really bad, and you're like, oh, man, I'm so sorry, you know. And, and you were joking around, but you ended up saying more truth than you wanted, or you realized that you were saying. And I think that's what's happening in this section. The first example of that is Pilate. Pilate puts a sign up over Jesus, and it says, the king of the Jews. And Pilate here, he's, he's mocking both Jesus, and he's mocking the Jews. We know from history, Pilate hated, he hated the Jews. So he's just trying to mock them. He's saying, look, Jews, here's your king. Here's what happens to people who think they're going to become the king of the Jews. They get crucified. They fail. The Romans crucify them. The irony, though, is that Jesus really is the king of the Jews. And he's not failing in his mission. He's actually fulfilling it. And the second group we see is, is the average people who are just kind of walking up and down the highway. They're going in and out. It's, a, it's the Passover. It's a holiday. And so they're just kind of hiking in and out of the city. And they're passing by Jesus, and they're mocking him. And I think a, a big reason for that is because Jesus is famous. There's two tendencies we have towards people. We, we tend to either elevate them. We, we love to elevate people. We love to put people up on a pedestal. But I think our human nature is such that we love even more to tear them down from that pedestal. We love to rip on famous people. Some, some famous person has trouble with the law or trouble with their marriage, and the tabloids just go crazy. That sells more tabloids than if, if that person's doing well. 
We love to rip people down. And so here's Jesus. He's been famous. He's been doing these, these powerful, powerful ministry. Everybody knows about him. And now he's hanging here on the cross. And these people are going at him. And they're saying, hey, you who said you were going to, to destroy the temple and build it and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. And they're mocking him. And the irony is that Jesus was talking about himself. He, Jesus, is the true temple. He's the new way that we can have this relationship with God. And the only way for that to happen was for his body to be destroyed and then rebuilt in three days. Not to save himself, but to save others. And then you have the religious leaders in verse 42. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. The irony here is that to save himself, Jesus, or to save others, Jesus couldn't save himself. He, if he had come down from the cross at that moment, they might have believed in him. They might have said, oh my goodness, he really is the Son of God. But there would be no payment for sin. There would be no eternal salvation. Their, their eternal destiny would not be any difference. Verse 43, he trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the Son of God. The irony here is that they're mocking Jesus by quoting from Psalm 22, verse 8. Psalm 22 is a messianic prophecy. It means it's a prophecy about the Messiah. It's talking about the kind of sufferings, the kind of sacrifice that the Messiah is going to have to do. It talks about how he's going to be forsaken by God. It talks about him being mocked and despised, about him pouring his life out into the dust of death talks about his bones being pulled out of joint and, a, and about the dogs surrounding him. And dogs, in that context, it was, it was a Jewish word for Gentiles. talks about the Gentiles surrounding him and piercing his hands and his feet and casting lots for his clothing. All this is happening in front of these guys, in front of these experts. They see it happening in front of them. They even quote it. And a few minutes later, Jesus actually quotes from this. In verse 46. So these guys, these are experts in the Old Testament. They're, they have the equivalent of a PhD in the Old Testament. They know it by heart. And they're quoting from it, and it, yet they don't realize that what they're saying is true. Jesus is the Messiah. He is doing all of this for them. Verse 45. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. So Jesus is crucified at about 9 a.m., 9 in the morning. And from noon to 3, it says that darkness came over the whole land. And that's primarily over Israel. But there's actually a Roman historian in 50 A.D. who mentions this darkness coming over the Roman world. And about, he mentions that it happened around 33 A.D. So there is some historical evidence for this, which is interesting. But the darkness is primarily over Palestine. And I think it represents a couple things. One... It symbolizes that Jesus' life is slipping away. It's fading. Jesus came as the light to the world. He came as a light in the darkness. He, came, he was calling people, come to the light. 
come and walk in the light while there's still time, before the darkness comes. And now his light, now his life is fading away and the darkness is coming. And it's represented by physical darkness. But I think even more than that, this darkness represents God's judgment. That's typically what darkness represents in the Old Testament. It's, it's showing God's judgment on the land, on Israel, because Israel has rejected their Messiah, they've rejected their king, and we know that in 40 years, the Romans are going to come and destroy their temple, kick the Jews out of their land. But even more than that, I think it's a judgment, primarily, it's a judgment on Jesus. This outer blackness represents an inner blackness in his soul. And God is treating Jesus as if he has committed every sin ever committed by anyone who would ever believe. And so God is pouring out his punishment for sin, his wrath, his anger, his hatred for sin. He's pouring it out on his own son. And so finally Jesus cries out in verse 46, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this is our hard saying for the day. What is Jesus saying here? What in the world does he mean? Is he literally saying that, he, that, that, that God has forsaken him, that there's a real separation between God and Jesus? How's that possible? Jesus is, we believe there's a trinity going on here, right? That Jesus, and, and Jesus is the Son of God, and so you've got the Father and the Son and the Spirit, and there are three distinct persons, but they're connected in a unity of being, that, that they're inseparable, you can't separate them from each other. How's it possible that Jesus is forsaken? And I think... Certainly there's a mystery here in understanding that, but I don't think that Jesus is talking about a genuine ontological separation between him and his Father. I think he's talking about a separation of, of fellowship, of intimacy. He feels despair because he feels, for, he feels abandoned by his Father. And think about this. Jesus, the Son, and the Father have loved each other from eternity with a kind of love that we can't fathom. Think of the, think of the best possible father-son relationship that you can imagine, the best possible relationship. And you have just a glimmer of what, what the son and the father have had from eternity. This intimate, amazing love that they have for each other. And now Jesus is being treated as if the father hates him, and it's a strange experience. He's always been sinless. He's always had this perfect peace and joy at, at the foundation of his soul. Think about that. Jesus never felt guilt. He never felt he never felt despair or any of the feelings we have because of sin. He never felt that. Of course, he got angry and he had emotions that fluctuated, but deep down in his soul, he felt peace and he felt joy and he felt this intimate connection with his father. And all of a sudden, that's broken and now he begins to feel guilt and despair and, and the filth of a, of a sinner's conscience. And he's, he can't understand this. He has, he's had perfect intimacy for so long with the father and now he feels isolation and he feels God's wrath on him. So I think beyond the physical torment, which was extreme, I think the, the emotional, the spiritual torment was also incredibly terrible. And so finally Jesus, he's, he's just feeling this weight on him and this, this, this filth, and where is God? I, I don't feel the intimacy. And finally he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you, Father? And yes, I realize that this, he's quoting here from Psalm 22.1, He's, he's quoting this to show, yes, that he is the Messiah, but I don't think he's just kind of chilling up here and he's like, well, I should probably show everybody that I'm the Messiah. And so he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Just to show people that, you know, that he's the Messiah, he's fulfilling the passage. I think he's aware that he's fulfilling the passage, but I think he genuinely feels despair. 
He has these feelings. He has this sense of, oh, I can't, I, I, where is this intimacy that I've always enjoyed with the Father? And what's happening is that Jesus is substituting himself in the place of every believer, and he's taking the punishment for our sins. He is a sacrifice for us. Isaiah described this over 700 years before Jesus in Isaiah 53, 4 through 6. And it says, Surely he took up our infirmities and he carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus suffered in our place for our sins. And you may say, that's not fair, and you're absolutely right. That is not fair, and we should be thankful that it's not fair. God killed his son, and his son agreed to it because it was the only way to punish sin without destroying sinners for eternity. And then in verse 47, we go on from there, and, and these people, they hear him crying out, and Eloi, uh, which is either Aramaic or Hebrew for God, there's some discussion on that, but Eloi, which means God, sounds a lot like Eli, which uh, is a nickname, it's an abbreviated form of Elijah. And in Jewish tradition, if you know the Old Testament, Elijah went up to heaven in a fiery chariot. And so Jewish tradition at this time, some people believe that he was still kind of cruising around in this fiery chariot. And he would come and rescue people who were in trouble. He would rescue the saints. And so these people hear Jesus saying, saying, Eloi, but, he, but he's crying out and he's, and he, he's yelling, Eli. And so they think he's calling Elijah. And so they're mocking him. They're like, hey, this guy's calling Elijah. What a, you know. What a fool, and they're, they're you know, making fun of him. And then they say, hey, let's play a really mean, practical joke on this guy. And so they run, and they get a sponge. And I always thought, man, they're being really friendly to Jesus. Isn't this nice? I mean, he's dying. He's in a lot of pain. And so they're going to go and give him a little drink before he dies. But actually, these are the sponges that Roman soldiers would use, use to wipe themselves after a bowel movement. And the bucket was, they would put it in a bucket full of vinegar to disinfect the sponge. So they lift this to Jesus, and, and literally, with the filth of humanity on his lips and on his soul, Jesus cried out. Literally, he screamed and gave up his spirit because he knew that his work of redemption was complete. I have two application points for this passage for us today. The first point is that the cross is sacred not sentimental. Don't ask me to spell sentimental, by the way. Just do your best in your, in your notes. The cross is sacred, not sentimental. It's good to be touched by what Jesus suffered. It's fine to get emotional over what he suffered. But if we aren't touched by why he suffered, then we've missed the point. We've missed it. And I think that's the biggest danger for these movies like The Passion of the Christ. People are watching this, and, and they get very emotional, and there's a lot of emotionalism without, with either unbelief or trivial belief. And what I mean by that is they get very emotional, and they're saying, oh my goodness, I can't believe this innocent man is being treated this way, and they're crying, you know, and I don't know, you've probably seen it, I've had this experience with people, and they're crying, but there's no real sense of belief that Jesus died for them. 
that they need to lay hold of that. They need to repent and trust in him. They don't really, they don't really do that. Or maybe they kind of trivial. They, they say, oh, yeah, sure, he died for sins. And they're emotional, and then they go out and they just kind of live life the same old way. They kind of forget about what happened. And, and every, you know, every good Friday, they'll watch the passion and cry. Then they'll go out and just kind of live life the same old way. No real change. They don't really believe. And I think that there, there were actually some people like this at Jesus' crucifixion. In Luke chapter 23, which is a parallel version of this story, Jesus is carrying the cross beam. He's on his way to Golgotha. And these women come, these Jewish women come, and they're crying. This was a common thing, that Jewish women would come and they would cry over people being crucified. I don't know why, but I guess it was just a way to show they, they felt bad. And so they would come and they're crying over Jesus. And they're saying, oh, Jesus, you're, gonna, you're going to be crucified. And Jesus looks at them and he says, daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. And he begins to describe the judgment that is coming on them. And I think that's what Jesus would say to those who are emotional but who don't really believe. He would say, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. Because if you don't turn to me, if you don't trust in me, there's a judgment coming on you that's worse than what came on me because it's eternal. So turn, repent, trust in Jesus before it's too late. Trust in him, trust in his identity, that he is the Son of God, the Lord, the Sovereign King. He has all power. He's completely in control. Trust in his character, that he's good, that he loves you, that he truly wants what is best for you, that his teachings, his commands, his ways are in your best interest. And if you allow him, he is working things out for your ultimate good. Trust that. Believe that. And finally, and most of all, trust in his sacrifice, that he took the punishment for your sins and he offers you the benefits of his perfect life. If you'll turn away from living for yourself, living by your rules, living your own way, and you will submit yourself to Christ in faith, trusting in him to save you, he will save you. He will make you a child of God. The cross is sacred. It's not sentimental. The second point is that the cross gives hope in despair. The cross gives hope in in despair. I think when we, when we look at this passage that we've looked at today, typically we, we see in it Christ's payment for our sins, and we focus on that point, and that, that's absolutely right that we should focus on that principle. But hidden in that, I think, is a golden nugget that we often overlook, and that is that Christ understands what it feels like to feel genuinely forsaken by God. Not that God forsook him, but he felt. He genuinely felt forsaken by God. He genuinely felt despair. And I know that there are some here today, you love Jesus, you believe in Jesus, you've given your life to Jesus, and yet you struggle. You struggle with feelings of depression, feelings of despair, on a regular basis. Maybe it's because of your own, it could be because of sin, your own failures and guilt, and you struggle with the consequences for that, or sins that people have done to you and you're suffering with the consequences, or maybe it's just part of living in a fallen world and living with our, our broken biology that doesn't function sometimes the way it should, and you struggle with despair and depression, you say, how in the world could Jesus ever understand what I'm going through? He's the perfect Son of God. He had this perfect relationship with God. Yeah, he was tempted, sure, but how could he understand how I feel? The Bible makes it clear that Jesus does understand. He 
He faced a darkness. He faced a despair that is blacker than you or I will ever face. The emotions, the feelings of despair, the the suffering that was going on there is greater than anything we'll ever face. And yet Jesus, he did not give in to that. And that's an important point. And we see that very clearly from Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 and 3. says, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus knows what it feels like to be forsaken by God. He knows despair in its darkest sense, and yet he held on to hope. He held on to his faith for the joy set before him. He endured the cross, scorning his shame. The feelings were real, but Jesus did not give in to those feelings. He felt forsaken, but he knew that God would not forsake him. He knew that God would rescue him. God would vindicate him. He knew that there was eternal joy set before him. And so he persevered. He held on to hope. And because of his cross, we have that same hope. That when we give our lives to Christ, no matter what we go through, no matter what depths of despair and depression that we face, no matter how forsaken we feel by God, we can have confidence, we can have faith, rock-solid faith that God will not forsake us, that he will bring us home to eternal joy forever. Why do we celebrate the cross? Why is the cross the symbol of our faith? Because it is the foundation of our salvation, and it is the guarantee that we will not be forsaken by God. Let's pray.